From the Pardes Institute of Jewish Studies, this is Pardes from Jerusalem. I'm Larry Kluger, Pardes alum. This week, Shabbat Zachor for Purim. This week, Pardes is also pleased to announce the Pardes Purim Companion. That's a great handout that you can print and then check out during Purim. It's available from the Elmod website by Pardes. That's the electronic learning site, E-L-M-A-D. Pardes.org. Then click on Holidays, and then click on Purim, and you'll see the Pardes Purim Companion. So check that out. This week, Shabbat Zachor with Rabbi Michael Hatton. Rabbi Michael Hatton is a member of the Pardes faculty. And now, Rabbi Michael Hatton. This week is Parshat Zachor, and we will read that section from Sefer Devarim, the Book of Deuteronomy, Chapter 25 that describes Amalek's attack and the mitzvot associated with commemorating that event. The text in Devarim chapter 25 states, Remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you left the land of Egypt. They encountered you upon the way and attacked all of the stragglers at the rear of the camp while you were weary and exhausted, and they did not fear the Lord. Therefore, when God your Lord grants you respite from all of your foes round about in the land that God your Lord gives to you, as an inheritance to possess, you shall blot out the memory of Amalek from under the heavens. Never forget, lo tishkach. The Sefer HaChinuch records that there are actually three separate mitzvot associated with these events. Number one, to remember what Amalek did to us. Remember what Amalek did to you on the way. Number two, to destroy Amalek. Blot out the memory of Amalek from under the heavens. And number three, never forget Lo Tishkach. This week we're going to consider the background to the mitzvah or the mitzvot associated with never forgetting. And that's, of course, the original story of Amalek's attack in Parshat Bishalach in the book of Exodus. Just to connect the dots, the reason why we read this particular section at this particular time of year is because traditionally, the events of the Megillah, in which Haman sought to destroy the Jewish people, are connected with the events of Amalek. Haman is identified as a descendant of Ha'agagi, Haman ben Hamdata Ha'agagi, and Agag, according to the book of Samuel, chapter 15, was none other than the king of Amalek in ancient times. So Haman a direct descendant of Amalek, attempts to destroy the Jewish people, much as his ancestors attempted to destroy the Jewish people in their attack, as recorded in the book of Exodus. And we therefore remember these particular mitzvot at this particular time of year. As I pointed out, the original story of Amalek's attack is described in the book of Exodus, chapter 17. The verses state, Amalek arrived and battled Israel at Rephidim. Moshe said to Yehoshua, Choose men for us and go out to fight Amalek. For tomorrow I will stand at the top of the hill with the staff of the Lord in my hand. Yehoshua did just as Moshe had told him and chose men to fight against Amalek. While Moshe, Aharon, and Hur ascended to the top of the hill. When Moshe raised his hand, then Israel would prevail. But when he put down his hand, then Amalek would prevail. But Moshe's arms became heavy, so they took a rock and placed it underneath him, and he sat upon it. 
Aharon and Hur supported his arms, one on each side, so that his hands remained steadfast until the setting of the sun. Yehoshua overpowered Amalek and its people by the sword. God said to Moshe, Record this as a memorial in the book and recount it clearly to Yehoshua, for I will surely blot out the memory of Amalek from underneath the heavens. Moshe built an altar and called its name, God is my banner. For he said, A hand is upon the throne of God, a war for God against Amalek for all generations. So concluded Parshat Peshalach, perhaps the most striking and stirring section in all of Sefer Shmot, in all of the book of Exodus. Narrated in the brief span of 115 verses was the account of how the people of Israel journeyed forth from bondage. They were soon pursued and trapped by Pharaoh's bloodthirsty cavalry as they encamped at the shores of the Sea of Reeds. Their proud resolve melted away. Their short-lived freedom now seemed to them a cruel illusion, a heartless deception perpetrated by God with a penchant for inflicting torment. Moshe, himself unsure of God's intent, attempted to buoy their broken spirits as God's fiery angels took up defensive positions around the Israelite camp and the eastern winds began to blow. As the night gloom fell, the waters of the sea suddenly parted. Israel was offered a stark and overwhelming choice. Either follow God's guidance and descend into the dark and threatening depths, or remain behind to be cut to pieces by Pharaoh's charioteers. Israel chose the former, but Egypt pursued them into the midst of the churning waters. With the rising dawn, Pharaoh's forces were thrown into panic, for the chariot wheels were hopelessly locked in the thick mud of the returning tides. As the blood-red sun rose over the azure surface of the sea, the dead Egyptian host aimlessly bobbed upon its crests. As Moshe triumphantly led the people in a victory song to God, these events all recorded in chapters 14 and 15 of the book of the book of Exodus. But then the people entered the foreboding wilderness of Shur, and they found no water to drink. They were preserved from thirst by Moshe's prayer and his divinely directed intervention. And then they journeyed on to enjoy a brief break at the oasis of Elim, but once again entered the vast wasteland of Sin, and now they hungered mightily. God comforted them by providing them with the extraordinary manna to eat. Scarcely a single month had elapsed from the time that the people had left the brick pits of Egypt. In that short span, they had already acquired a lifetime of experience. Soon Israel journeyed to Rephidim as they slowly made their way in the direction of Sinai, but once again they were plagued with thirst. This time, chapter 17 of Exodus, Moshe struck the rock at God's behest and the people's thirst was quenched. And then, quite unexpectedly, Israel was attacked by the marauding tribe of Amalek. In the final and desperate close to this most riveting section of the Torah, only through the heroic efforts of Yehoshua and the otherworldly intervention afforded by Moshe's outstretched arms was Israel victorious over the foe. Considering the matter of the Parsha in its entirety, we may summarize by observing that every one of the Parsha's events presented us with a striking and unsettling contrast of emotional states. 
an exultant euphoria now abruptly punctured by a paralyzing dread, a hopeful anticipation now dashed to pieces by some unforeseen and overwhelming menace. How ephemeral were the moments of equilibrium, how brief and short-lived. And linking together these otherwise disparate events like some tenuous and delicate thread was the Parsha's recurring refrain, trust in God and be preserved, abandon that trust and perish. Perhaps the hardships encountered at Yamsuf and Shur, the wilderness of Sin and Rifidim, were to impress upon the people what sorts of challenges would surely lie ahead along the long path towards achieving the national goal. In order to be securely established as a nation in Canaan, at that time only a distant dream, the people of Israel would have to overcome deprivation and scarcity, setback and adversity, and no shortage of hostile enemies lurking in the shadows. But by trusting in God and following His commands, no small expectation from a people just recently freed from bondage, Israel could succeed. Now, the attack of Amalek. We are not told why Amalek attacked the people of Israel. We are left to ponder the nature of Moshe's unusual stratagem of outstretched arms. We are introduced for the first and almost last time to an otherwise unknown character by the name of Hur, and we are taken aback by God's unusually harsh pronouncement against the routed foe. Some light is shed by our section in Sefer Devarim, which we will read this Shabbat as the Maftir. Deuteronomy chapter 25, once again. Remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you left the land of Egypt. They encountered you upon the way and they attacked all of the stragglers at the rear of the camp while you were weary and exhausted and they did not fear the Lord. Therefore, when God your Lord grants you respite from all of your foes round about in the land that God your Lord gives to you as an inheritance to possess, you shall blot out the memory of Amalek from under the heavens, never forget. This much is clear from the above passage. Amalek's attack was not only unprovoked, but it was focused upon those members of the Israelite camp least able to defend themselves those that tarried at the back of the camp, unable to keep up because of infirmity or age, were cut down and killed. Amalek struck the weak and the feeble, the children and the old, choosing a moment when the people of Israel were drained, were drained from their wilderness journey and disillusioned by its ordeals. Returning to the passage, we note that the verse states explicitly, Vayavo Amalek vayilachem b'Yisrael b'Rifidim, Amalek arrived and battled Israel at Rifidim. Amalek's deed was therefore more than a spontaneous attempt to secure easy plunder, a chance encounter with the slow-moving and disorganized Israelite camp. Rather, Amalek set out from their desert strongholds with a definite destination in mind, a clear objective, a specific aim. Amalek arrived and battled Israel. Aware of the events of the Exodus and informed of Israel's route, well accustomed to the privations of the wilderness and fully aware of novice Israel's predicament, Amalek sallied forth not to offer relief, but to assail. Their intent was to check the Israelite advance towards Sinai and later the land of Canaan by sowing seeds of terror 
in their midst. But that's not all. The passage in Sefer Devarim illuminates Amalek's motives, for it states explicitly that the nomadic marauders did not fear the Lord, Velo Yare Elohim. This phrase may be reasonably understood as an objective value judgment furnished by the narrative in the aftermath of Amalek's conduct, but it can also be taken as a subjective statement of their state of mind, their underlying motivation on the eve of their assault. Because they did not fear the Lord, therefore they attacked. Taken together, then, the passage from Devarim, when coupled with our passage from Bishalach, the painful reminisce and the actual event make it clear that the attack of Amalek was in fact extraordinary. Pharaoh's pursuit, the textual analog to the episode of Amalek, is at least comprehensible, if morally unjustifiable. Had he not been grievously struck by the plagues of their god and forced to surrender them to freedom against his will? But how shall we explain the nefarious conduct of Amalek? whose only previous connection to Israel was one of distant kin, as reported in Genesis chapter 36, verses 9 to 12. We must assume, as the rabbi surely did, that, Amalek was only a that, um, that Israel itself was only a concrete expression of their true target, God himself. Rabbi Avraham Ibn Ezra explains, The chieftains of Edom trembled at the reports of his signs and wonders in Egypt and at Yamsuf, and so too Moab and Peleshet. But this tribe of Amalek, when they heard of God's mighty acts on behalf of Israel, they journeyed from afar to battle them, and they did not fear God. That is what is meant by, he did not fear God. The Ramban Nachmanides employs similar language while amplifying the matter. He says, the punishment meted out to Amalek is more severe than that reserved for any other nation. This is because all of the other peoples heard and trembled, and the resolve of Peleshet Edom, Moab, and the Canaanites melted away in the face of, his, of God's mighty grandeur. But Amalek came from afar, as if to overpower God, and therefore it states that he did not fear God. Also, Amalek are the descendants of Esav. They are therefore our kin. But here they sought to stoke enmity by battling against us without cause. For both of these commentaries, the assumption is that it is God himself who was the target of Amalek's murderous intent. As our distant kin, one would have expected that Amalek would have extended a more gracious welcome to the freed people of Israel. They had no need to feel threatened by Israel's march since Amalek themselves were nomadic tribesmen with no designs of their own on settling the Canaanite highlands that were Israel's eventual destination. Rather, Amalek was unsettled by the new dynamic that Israel's liberation had unleashed in the world because for the first time in recorded human history, a new set of laws had been proclaimed. Slavery and oppression are wrong. Life must entail more than material acquisition and the building of grand monuments of stone and the brutal state of nature that is the playground for the tyrants and the dictators, the generals and the chieftains is no place for sensitive human beings who are created in the image of God. As desert marauders that wandered in the wastelands of the northern Sinai, Amalek's livelihood depended upon regular forays into settled areas in order to engage in pillage and theft 
See, for instance, their rule in the book of Judges, chapter 6, verses 3, to f 3 through 5. Testimony to their ongoing loyalty to this lifestyle, even more than a hundred years after the events of, our, of, the, of Parshat B'Shalach. Denizens of an unforgiving landscape, they know well nature's harsh dictates that condemn the weak and the feeble to oblivion while championing the survival of the stealthy and the strong. How irrelevant are moral value judgments to the snake and the scorpion, the vulture and the jackal, the studded thistle and the piercing thornbush for Amalek. The unique potential that endows the human being with intelligence, skill and understanding must be employed towards only one purpose, to overpower prey and to kill it. Amalek is in ample possession of all of Pharaoh's most unsavory traits, but they lack absolutely any of the God King's external charms. Is it any wonder that Amalek emerges like seasoned predators to shamelessly attack the defenseless stragglers at the rear of the Israelite camp, choosing the freed slave's moment of exhaustion to unexpectedly strike? Is it any wonder that the Torah refers to this sort of conduct as being motivated by an utter absence of fear of God? It is, any, is it any wonder that their unprovoked assault is perfectly timed to coincide with the people's exodus from Egypt and triumph at the sea? Both of these events overt expressions of God's concerned involvement in human history. Understood this way, Moshe's hands raised aloft, grasping the staff, are not meant to be the magical intervention of some sort of inspired shaman who will win the day in spite of Israel's unfamiliarity with combat. Rather, his outstretched arms are potent symbols for God's intervention for the eternal validity of the principles of ethical monotheism, for the sustaining trust that in the end, goodness and righteousness will prevail against cruelty and unprovoked violence. Surely it's more than serendipity that it is Aharon and Hur that bear his hands high, the former selected to minister in God's house, the latter the progenitor of that house's chief artisan, Bitzalil. But in spite of Moshe's hands, Yehoshua and Israel must still fight because the war against Amalek, though it is at the core a war of worldviews, must still be waged in space and time. No wonder the early rabbis were loath to assign Amalek an identifiable ethnic identity, for they detected in the skirmish against Amalek the intimations of all of Israel's future conflicts the hostility and hatred that would dog their mission in the world until the end of time. See Rashi's commentary to chapter 17 of Exodus, verse 16. Thus, more than 3,000 years after, battle, after the battle of Amalek, we are still fighting, though many Jews have already forgotten as a result of the unbearable burden of our history or else by willful neglect exactly why we are still fighting, Amalek has not forgotten. Stealthily speaking words of peace, he continues to sharpen weapons of war, never tiring of his ultimate goal to eradicate Israel's God idea from the world. But as the Ramban so eloquently explains, the conflict engendered by Amalek is both our first as well as our last battle. Amalek is a descendant of Esav and was the first nation to attack us. The descendants of Esav later brought about the destruction of the temple and our present exile. 
when Amalek and the nations that support it are finally defeated, then our redemption will be eternal, as the verse states, Saviors shall ascend Mount Zion to judge Mount Esav, and dominion shall be God's alone. Shabbat Shalom. Thanks for tuning in, and we'll see you on the next episode of Pardis from Jerusalem.